Welcome to ASHTA Resource Q&A. We're taking time to discuss construction materials testing and inspection with people in the know. From exploring testing problems and solutions to laboratory best practices and quality management, we're covering topics important to you. Now, here's our host, Brian Johnson. Welcome to ASHTO Resource q and I'm Brian Johnson. With me is Kimberly Swanson. Hey, Kim. Hi, Brian. Great to be here today. Well, we have an exciting day planned for our listeners today. We are going to talk about the transportation bill. Recently, as most of you probably know, the president signed a bill into law that's intended to address some of the concerns we've had over the years regarding infrastructure. This is something that should have an impact on people in the transportation industry, construction and maintenance, as well as the traveling public. Here to give us some insight into this new law is Jung Lee, who is our new Deputy Director at Ashto. Jung, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Brian. Hey, Kim. Thank you so much for having me uh, once again. Yeah. Now, last time when we talked to Jung, he was not the Deputy Director, and now he is. Jung, just a little, if you don't mind talking about this real quickly, how is that going to change for you and your involvement in transportation policy? Uh, so my new role uh, is, you know, going to keep the work that I had been doing, which is more on kind of the legislative and policy development front and making sure that our state DOT members, you know, perspectives are well represented on Capitol Hill with our U.S. DOT partners, et cetera. The new role, I, I think, you know, is really looking to take a more strategic approach in how we envision and deliver on the association's priorities. So to be a little bit more specific, we have our 2021-2022 ASHTO president, Dr. Sean Wilson from Louisiana Department of Transportation and Development. His presidential emphasis areas, first is on equity, and second is on building stronger partnerships and so those are the kinds of things that I guess my role will have in coming up with tangible deliverables during his tenure. We also have adopted our new ASHTO strategic plan for the next five years. And that is also something where we want to make sure that it's a plan that is put into action, uh, again, with tangible results. So the new role will help to, you know, channel, I think, the association's resources and obviously the, just the great talent that we have, right, to actualize uh, what our board of directors has laid upon for the association. And then also continuing, I think, you know, the engagement with our external stakeholders, whether it's not just government, but other associations, academic institutions, private sector partners, et cetera. Well, that's exciting to hear. And as a uh staff member in one of the technical service programs of ashto i'm excited to be part of that too so uh look forward to some collaboration in the future with all of the technical service programs and our new deputy director so now let's get into the transportation bill so john do you mind giving us some highlights so you know i think we've had kind of this talk about this infrastructure week for some time now and to actually see it happen, <laughs> I mean, yes, that's what we've all been striving for for years and years at this point, right? To actually put infrastructure investment as a top national priority and then make it happen. Um, by making it happen, meaning, you know, come up with unprecedented levels of funding resources and strong policy goals 
attached to that as well. And that, that is what we have with this bipartisan infrastructure bill. The technical title is a mouthful. It's the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. We are still trying to figure out the shorthand. Is it EJA? <laughs> is it something else? But obviously, the important thing here is that it does provide for the transportation sector $567 billion in funding over the next five years, uh, so between 2022 and 2026. What we were looking at before for the highway trust fund programs, if you were to just have flatline existing funding, would be about $300 billion. So going from $300 billion to almost $600 billion, right? That, that is a lot of additional resources being provided. I know that there are a lot of different numbers out there. Uh, principally, this $1.2 trillion infrastructure package is what's been talked about a lot. And then, you know, $550 billion of that is the new spending on top of existing funding levels. That includes other sectors well outside of transportation, like power and, you know, water, wastewater and the like. But what we're obviously focused on here at Ashto on transportation funding levels is that $567 billion. Specifically for this audience, you know, on the roads, bridges, highways sector, we are looking at $351 billion over five years. And just the year-over-year increase that we're looking at is going from $49 billion provided to the Federal Highway Administration last federal fiscal year to uh, 67.7 billion in 2022. So that's about a 30% bump. Um, and that's a very healthy, uh, robust bump. Some other sectors like rail, for example, is actually seeing a 470% or so year over year funding increase. So the, that really, I mean, I think, you know, you can classify as generational investment. Uh, transit levels are also very robust as well as is uh, safety funding too. So those are all the, you know, the kinds of priorities that Congress saw fit to include in the bill along with the Biden administration. And um, we're excited as the state DOTs really own and operate so much of these important assets to actually implement that bill and bring the benefits that had been long promised to every part of the country. Yeah, no, that rail investment, like you said, that's a generational change there. And we're talking about something that has been looked at as kind of an antiquated mode of transportation, but certainly an important one, especially when we're talking about moving goods uh, around that and, and materials. That is important. And what, I mean, when's the last time you can remember anybody really talking about pumping money into rail? Yeah. So, uh, you know, during the Recovery Act, this is after the Great Recession or during the Great Recession in 2009, there were $8 billion that were provided for high-speed rail programs around the country. And we have been able to, I think, see higher speed rail in some of the corridors around the country. A uh, good chunk of that money went to the California high-speed rail program that is still working its way through. Um, but that was a very specific focus on high-speed rail. The bill in the infrastructure package or the for rail, um, it's really looking at, you know, passenger rail programs as a whole and also kind of the related improvements on freight rail side as well. Yeah. Now, for a lot of people, when they hear about 
these numbers. You know, you already mentioned the $1.2 trillion, but uh, more specifically, the, the $550 billion that is going to go into a lot of the things that our customers are concerned with. There is so much there's so much need for improvement and so much need to expand the roads and and improve the bridges and and all of the things that are needed throughout the country. That does not sound like a lot of money. How is that going to get distributed? How, you know, how does a state take advantage of some of those funds to get some of their priorities taken care of? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. So, we've relied for the transportation sector the kind of the tenets of federalism, right? It's that the state and localities uh, work together with the federal government, but it's not really kind of the federal government calling the shots. Um, you you can see kind of in more of the centralized structures, you know, like in Korea or Japan uh, or or China, where, you know, there's a lot of top down, like this is what shall happen throughout the country. That's not our model in the U.S. Uh, we are looking to, you know, continue to really have the states take a leading role, again, with their local partners in delivering these federal resources. The states and localities already have, you know, the 20-year long-range transportation plans that outline their vision at the state level or for the metropolitan level. They have the four-year capital programming uh, plans that can kind of tie in the specific dollar amounts into specific phases of projects. So that's really based, again, uh, on the state-local determination of how the dollars are to be spent, um, whether it's repair or upkeep slash state of repair or new infrastructure being added to the network. There are also some categories under this new bill, rather than the formula dollars provided to states, that are going to be provided directly by USDOT in the form of what we call discretionary grant programs. So discretionary in the sense that USDOT has the authority to pick the projects that they feel fit the criteria laid out by Congress, but obviously with the kinds of policy lens that matches up with the administration's goals and then give those dollars directly to those projects. That is, you know, something that we've seen again since the Recovery Act 12 years ago with the Tiger grants that you might have heard of. Those are now called the RAISE uh, grants. It's gone through some name changes over the years. There's also the Infra Grant Program that the last reauthorization bill, the FAST Act in 2016, um, established focused on highway freight projects. Those are two really kind of the prominent discretionary grant programs so far. The new infrastructure bill would create a whole lot more of those types of programs. So it would provide more project selection and decision-making authority directly to the U.S. DOT than it has ever been before. So, you know, I think for our state DOT members, they can definitely look to rely on the traditional formula-based apportionments that they can program for the next five years of the bill and then they can compete for these discretionary grant programs as plus-ups to those formula dollars. But it takes a lot of work to be able to create the solicitation, application criteria, and then application evaluation, uh, project agreement slash grant award. All of that takes time. So 
there is definitely a lot of work cut out at the USDOT to really process all those dollars. So we talked about this last time we had you on too, that there are all these systems in place and, and the, the DOTs, for example, they may have 10, 20 years of projects that they have slated to get built or get rehabilitated or expand the, what they have for their citizens. And so does this mean if, I, if I'm running the DOT budget office and I'm, I'm figuring out, okay, well, I've got, uh, I originally slated to have all of these projects done. Now with this added funding, I can add 25% more construction. Is that, is that basically what the impact is for each state? Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, we are trying to find the right balance in terms of expectations in that this is, again, unprecedented amount of resources, but it's also not the kinds of resources that will fix every problem and even close to it, really. Like you said, Brian, the bill is going to be able to dig deeper into the list of all the projects and the improvements that the states are looking for, perhaps deeper down than before, but it's not going to be able to cover the entire list, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there may also be some improvements or benefits in terms of doing some of those types of improvements earlier rather than having to wait until the you know existing dollars open up. So those are definitely very important opportunities, but it also isn't necessarily something where we're looking at another new interstate highway system or that things can happen uh, and realize in the next six months uh, or even a year because by nature these types of capital investments take a long time to plan for and to uh, complete. Yeah now you also mentioned safety as part of this and I know that that's a smaller chunk of this investment but do you have any idea what kind of improvements in safety can be made with the funds that come out of this bill? So I think, you know, there are some philosophical underpinnings that are really emphasized throughout this bill. The first is that the transportation system should look to really protect vulnerable users of the system. By that, really the non-motorized users that are walking or bicycling that are not in, you know, uh, a a vehicle. Um, The other aspect is this idea of safe systems uh, approach, where rather than relying on education and enforcement to produce safe outcomes, and those are still necessary, but building a system that is as safe as possible so that even when there are user errors, and that is inevitable, that they would have a safe of an outcome as we can. And, you know, that's an area that has seen even greater urgency if it wasn't urgent before in terms of the roadway fatality numbers have really skyrocketed during the pandemic. We saw that last year. And then what was disturbing was the first half of 2021, the numbers were higher, much higher last year than ever before, but then it went even higher than that. And, you know, that was an announcement, a very sobering announcement made by Secretary Pete Buttigieg at USDOT actually at the AASHTO uh, annual meeting last month. The funding for safety, is that going to be distributed directly by USDOT? Or is this something that's going to go out to uh, different DOTs to distribute how they need? So a lot of these funding programs, we're seeing kind of the split treatment 
in that some money will go as kind of the base formula dollars. So there is the existing highway safety improvement program that is continued in the bill. That's the formula dollars provided to states. There is more flexibility added to that in the bill where you can use it for education and enforcement rather than only the quote unquote hard infrastructure like guardrail installation. So we do think that additional flexibility is helpful for that formula pot. There is also the discretionary grant program that the USDOT uh, will administer called the Safe Streets and Roads for All. That is a brand new construct, uh, really. So in terms of what the specific criteria would look like, what the timeline for application would look like, all those things are still being figured out. Okay, well, that's good. And and I, th- I think this it might be an area that, you know, when you talk about safety, that not everybody thinks about all of the things that can go wrong unless they happen in your area. But if you talk to some of the DOTs, you hear some horror stories about what they're dealing with from a safety perspective. I remember attending a meeting and there was a presentation about all of the people who are going the wrong way on an on-ramp, you know, a widespread problem. And it seemed absurd to hear about it. But the more I've been paying attention to highway safety issues, this has become a serious problem uh, where people go the wrong way. And you would think, how in the world can that happen? And perhaps, you know, uh, signage problem could be an issue, perhaps education. There's a lot of ways the money could be distributed to kind of help improve some of those issues. Yes, it's definitely kind of the all of the above um, approach, but it really has been almost like an epidemic within an epidemic situation on the roadway fatalities in the last 20 months. Yeah, now let's talk about equity. Uh, That's another one that I think a lot of people don't really have a firm grasp on is, is what improvements can be made in the in the area of equity when it comes to transportation with a bill like this. Uh, can you give us any examples? I guess about a year ago, our board of directors at ASHTO adopted a resolution on race, diversity, equity, and inclusion, where you know there was the formal acknowledgement, and again, this is a unanimously adopted resolution, that there have been past harms caused by the actions of state DOTs. And we recognize that what some of the highway projects have done decades ago have caused real harm with real legacies uh, from those harms. And so there is a provision in this infrastructure bill called Reconnecting Communities. It's funded at $1 billion to find opportunities to reduce what is defined as infrastructure barriers. So if there is a structure that is separating communities, harming communities, what are the opportunities to address that? You know, we've seen a lot of different approaches around the country where in Denver, Interstate 70 through north of downtown Denver, they have recently, you know, I think they're getting close to completing a putting a cap over uh, the highway and depressing the expressway so that the communities that were separated by that elevated highway before are reconnected with park space and recreational amenities on top of it so that you still provide that thoroughfare which is a heavily used freight corridor as you can imagine but also make sure that the communities are reconnected we've seen uh in syracuse the i-81 project in new york where they're looking to eliminate kind of the through highway that goes right through the downtown and divert 
it essentially through a bypass to the outside of the town and then turned that former highway uh, into a urban boulevard. And, you know, there are many other types of approaches that are being considered, but now there is actual, you know, seed money from the federal government for that. So this is something that, you know, we are looking to really find not just infrastructure barriers or through this Connecting Communities program, but in every level at AASHTO, um, I mean, it can really expand to how can we bring more opportunities for disadvantaged business enterprises, for example, especially in kind of the hot emerging areas like electric vehicle charging infrastructure and make sure that we're able to recognize the different communities that have, again, been harmed by past decisions are able to get the kinds of opportunities um, available more broadly. Yeah, that, that's great to have that kind of purposeful investment in communities throughout the country. And and like you said, acknowledgement of the issues that have been caused by certain transportation projects. And, and maybe those factors weren't being thought about back then, or maybe they were being thought about in, in, in a negative way. But, you know, that a lot of times those concepts can be kind of hard to hard to grasp if you don't live in a, a densely populated area. But there's a lot in this bill for people in rural America as well, right? Not only are we talking about transportation investment, but I believe there's also some it, it, some broadband investment in this too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there is uh, 60 plus billion dollars of uh, direct broadband investment funding, which is a new program category, right? We haven't had a federal broadband program before. So that really provides significant amount of funding to really close that gap between especially urban areas. And as you noted, Brian, in rural areas, given obviously how, you know, indispensable the technology is to be able to access opportunities, whether it's health opportunities, whether it's jobs, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, anybody who lives in a rural area realizes that there are some problems with availability of broadband access and and that can be you know in today's life that can be a real problem especially for everything that's so <laughs> that's so connected when you're not connected you're left out in a number of ways so i think that's a great uh, acknowledgement and a great investment in the transportation bill and an expansion of the term infrastructure that is going to make an improvement in a lot of people's lives too uh, so what what else is it? We've we've covered a lot of topics today on this bill. Uh, what did we miss? Well, I would say that yeah, you know, some of the other kind of thematic priorities in the bill. Uh, one is on carbon reduction. Uh, so looking for ways to reduce the carbon fr- footprint from the transportation sector. A lot of it is really based on the vehicle emissions. So it's not so much that the infrastructure itself other than perhaps the construction process is causing the carbon footprint. It's more of the ongoing carbon footprint from the gas-powered vehicles. And so that's why you probably have heard about all sorts of EV charging infrastructure funding programs, alternative fuel corridor funding programs that are part of the bill. There is also a lot of focus on infrastructure resiliency. So those two angles that are both tied to the overall climate change challenges Uh, So on the resiliency side, there are new eligibilities added to the existing core highway formula programs to make sure that, hey, if it makes sense to invest more now 
to make it resilient so that you don't have to reconstruct the facility after it gets you know destroyed by a, a stronger hurricane down the road then we should allow the federal programs to support those kinds of activities oh okay so we're not talking just about uh, electric vehicles or or things that reduce carbon footprint but you're also talking about mitigating damage from uh, stronger storms that are coming now you know relative to climate change Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that was part of that. Well, now all of this work is going to require people to do it, right? So then we also have the jobs part, which is in the uh, the hodgepodge of words that is mixed into the title of this bill. So what, what kind of impact are we going to have with employment with this bill? Yeah. So, you know, I think traditionally there's been a lot of talk about the direct jobs gains related to transportation projects. And that is absolutely true. Uh, but what I think we've learned, especially over the last decade, um, what we went through with the Great Recession is that we really should focus and we are with this bill, the multi-decade return on investment. So this isn't about just the direct construction jobs. It's about just having a bigger jobs base across the board in the entire economy because it has become more efficient, more productive, thanks to the improved efficiencies and the benefits from the overall transportation system. I know that is harder to kind of conceptualize, especially and you know in a political sphere, it doesn't line up nicely with the next two years or the next four years of an election. Um, cycle, but that's really where the proof uh, is uh, of these kinds of investments is that the investment that we make now isn't just about who gets more votes uh, in the next election. It's really about benefiting all users or even the non-direct users of the system through not just improved economic performance, but quality of life, right? Being able to get to more places Uh, using more options than ever before in a healthier way, in a safer uh, way, uh, with improved environmental outcomes as well. So I think that this is really going to have a positive impact in so many ways. But one thing I, I always get a little down about when I look at these kind of bills is at the footnote, there's always something about, and this percent for fraud. There's always something built into these things for dealing with fraud. And and I, I, I forget how much it was on this one, but I remember it was significant. <laughs> as far as like a, a, a taxpayer, you know, perspective is concerned, I don't want to see any waste and fraud. I guess I should throw waste in there because it's not just fraud, it's waste and fraud. Now, what can we do to get better about that and keeping those numbers down on waste and fraud? Yeah, look, I mean, I think especially in the transportation sector and in the highway sector, uh, we've batted, I guess, above average, well above average in terms of stamping out waste, abuse and fraud over many decades at this point. We do have a very efficient control system on the revenue side with the gas tax, for example. It's actually collected only by a few thousand payers at the fuel distributor level. So it really makes it easier to track down if there are any problems going on uh, on the receipt side. On the how the dollars are spent, the kinds of you know procurement requirements that exist at the federal level, but also at each of the state level agencies as well, um, it's uh, well understood. It may not allow things to happen as quickly as people would like to see, but obviously there is always a trade-off between having kind of the more controlled 
physical outcomes and how quickly uh, you can do that. If you're looking at some of the more recent emergency programs, like for COVID is a great example. The CARES Act last year, that was the first of the COVID packages through the American Rescue Plan Act, both massive by historical standards legislation. And you saw that trade-off taking place with the CARES Act especially. This is an unprecedented emergency. We don't know what's going on, how this is going to end. We're going to pump out as much dollars to support small businesses and individuals as we can at the cost of some of that being diverted for fraudulent purposes. And you are seeing now some of these cases where, you know, somebody bought like like a Lamborghini with Paycheck Protection Program dollars and they're going to get prosecuted for it. But at the time, it was determined to be worth the national interest to just help as many people as possible rather than, well, who should we help and how do we figure out who's worthy and who's not, et cetera. It's a different approach with the infrastructure bill because this is looking at the longer term outlook. So we should, I think, continue to see very disciplined kind of spending relative to other types of federal uh, spending we've seen. Okay, well, that puts me at ease. I appreciate that uh, reassurance. Kim, do you have any other questions that popped up uh, in your mind as we've been having this discussion? I'm going to say no. Jung really covered all of the bases very well in a language I could even understand. So I appreciate that. Okay, great. Well, Jung, I appreciate your time today. I know you're a busy guy. And I know that our listeners are going to appreciate it too. You know, it's good to get this kind of objective perspective from Ashto, I think, on these issues because we don't have any agenda other than educating and informing people and, and, helping improve transportation in general. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity. I mean, I, I don't know what your list, listeners have done to have to listen to me again, I guess, since <laughs> April of this year. <laughs> but no, it's, it's really fun to be back and to uh, see you guys and obviously talk more about infrastructure policy. That's, that's, that's my thing. So <laughs> thank you again for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Ashto Resource Q&A. If you'd like to be a guest or just submit a question, send us an email at podcast at ashtoresource.org or call Brian at 240-436-4820. For other news and related content, check out Ashto Resources' Twitter feed or go to ashtoresource.org.